Welcome to the Bradworthy Culture Podcast, where leaders share how they've created a company so incredible their employees have to tell their friends about it. And now, here's your host, Jordan Peace. Welcome back to Bradworthy Culture. This is your host, Jordan Peace. And today we get the privilege of chatting with Colin Mincy. Colin is the Chief People Officer of Human Rights Watch. Uh, Human Rights Watch recently elevated the role purposefully to demonstrate a commitment to implement diversity, equity, and inclusion strategies and to ensure a resilient and thriving staff. As a CPO, Colin sits on the executive team, of course, and oversees recruitment, hiring, international comp and benefits, performance management, L&D, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And on the personal side of things, Colin lives and works in New York City, has four godchildren and a love of ramen, music, and karaoke. So welcome, Colin. Thanks for being here. Because all of those things go together. Yeah, perfectly. Perfectly well. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me. Uh, I was actually going to ask you a question right off the bat. How did the love of music and karaoke in particular come about? What's the story there? Grew up with uh, parents and and in a family who were musical enthusiasts, Mm. both through church. And my parents both had a love for musical theater. And so I grew up, you know, in the 80s, listening to 70s music. And that sort of fostered the love for it. And then, you know, karaoke is, you know, an outlet where um, if you drink enough, um, you think you sing well enough. And so um, that's kind of how those things got connected for me. (laughs) That makes perfect sense. Uh, Do you still have that love for musical theater as well? I mean, you're right there in New York, able to see some Broadway shows. Not since the pandemic, but um, Broadway is reopening in in limited spaces and, Um, all of the times that I thought about going and didn't go before, um, this time I'm going to see as many shows as many times as I can and encourage others to do these. They're hardworking uh, people whose talents have sort of been sidelined for mm-hmm. the moment. And I know they're anxious to get back on stage and I'm anxious to go and see them. Yeah, yeah. I'll try to get up there and join you. I, I love awesome. to see the occasional Broadway show. It's a little further trip for me, but it's well worth it. And there's a train that goes right up in there into Manhattan. So for the sake of our listeners, because I've, you know, I've looked into your website and, and really, you know, like I told you before we started recording, it really had an emotional impact on me just going to the website mm-hmm. and reading a few articles. But for the sake of our listeners, tell us about Human Rights Watch. What exactly are you guys doing as an organization day to day? The last part of your answer, uh, your last part of your question is, I think, the most important, which is that. Mm-hmm. Every day um, around the world, there are new things happening, um, uh, problems sort of expanding. And our role in the world is really to investigate and report on human rights abuses that are happening all over the world. And so we're in um, you know, 60 countries where we're about 500 folks from all backgrounds and where regional experts. Um, so we know the people and, and the things happening on the ground. Um, we're lawyers, journalists, advocates, communication specialists, and we're bound by the importance of ensuring that vulnerable people, um, women, children, LGBT folks, have access to mm-hmm. um, basic human rights and that 
they're in um, spaces where their governments and organizations and their business leaders are working in ways that are uh, consistent with making sure that everyone has the dignity of of mm. being respected and valued and and treated in 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 the ways that that we come to expect. Yeah. And we're all, you know, expressly committed to making sure that that our brand, our power, our leverage right is used to uh, in the in the most important spaces hmm. to give voice to um those who may not have it i love it yeah me uh, too yeah I, I love the word dignity in there I, I think that's such a good summation of of what's not offered to certain mm-hmm. people depending on who you are and where you live in this world and so forth that that's the big missing piece that um we forget to give dignity to all yes so that that's beautifully put thanks thanks for sharing that In your bio, you mentioned that HRW, I don't know how long ago, but has elevated this top HR function into the C-suite. And now your role is CPO. I'd love to hear more about when and kind of why that happened and how that's been received throughout those 500 employees over 60 Mm -hmm. countries. Yeah. So I started at uh, HRW in January of 2020. So um, it was an interesting first year. Yeah, the decision um, to elevate the role, you know, happened obviously before I got there in 2019, and it was informed by a number of things. One, I think there were internal uh, dynamics at play where sort of the intersection between HR and leadership, you know, there was a desire for for that to be strengthened mm. and to ensure that sort of our Internal culture is consistent with the values we extol on the outside, which I think is very important, not just for Human Rights Watch, but for organizations in general, particularly organizations in the human rights ecosystem. Second is, you know, there was a staff-led institution-endorsed drive for the organization to more deeply invest in DEI Mm. and bring... Um, the talk about building an inclusive workforce to the table so so that we can enact some real meaningful change around the around that process. And so I think that very much was part of the decision to elevate the role. Mm. And in general, well before the pandemic, the organization as a result of how difficult our work is, right. it, focusing on how we take care of our staff, mm. both from a duty of care and a stress of resilience perspective. I think all of those things became institutional priorities. Right. And since they sit in HR, it was, in my view, rightfully determined that HR should should sit amongst the executive team to help drive that change and to also help signal to the institution that, that Human Rights Watch was serious mm-hmm. about that work advancing. Right. I think that there is generally appreciation from the staff that that these priorities were elevated, mm-hmm. that the position was elevated, and I think it came from you know a long period of people hearing that the change was was on the horizon, but maybe weren't seeing it as fast as they would like. Okay, and where we are now is. We've changed quite a bit since January of 2020. Some of it based on sort of our intentional 
commitment to um, following through on what we've committed to our folks. Mm-hmm. And some of it is because we've been forced to, because um, 2020 is probably just the craziest year um, many of us have ever lived. Yeah. And, and so we've been forced to, we've been mm-hmm. forced to pivot and, and think through things differently. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, wherever, you know, the position sets, um, you know, I, make it part of my journey as a leader in the organization to touch base with staff to do as much outreach as possible um, and to remember so much of what I do and so much of what my incredible team does touches and impacts staff the most. And so, um, you know, I don't forget where I've come from and, and I think there's a lot of excitement about what we've taken on and what's um, left ahead of us to accomplish. Yeah. I love that. what in your mind would be like the highest compliment paid? Like if you were a fly on the wall or if you were reading a glass door review that was anonymous, like what would you love to hear people in your organization say about your culture, your employee experience? What's like the ultimate, like, ah, I just want this to be true of us. So much of my work touches on the recruitment and retention of people. And so the highest compliment, you know, has to be around how people feel about their time with us and how they experienced not only their work, but their relationships and the culture and people don't stay forever. So the highest compliment, I think that someone could pay that would really be touching and meaningful to me is when that person, you know, gets on the elevator or leaves the building on their last day of work, wherever they happen to work in any of our global offices. And they look back and say, you know what, because I spent time at Human Rights Watch, I'm a better whatever than when I started, that I've felt supported, I felt included, I felt invested in. And as a result of this experience, I'm now ready and prepared for the next thing. That's what I want for all of our staff. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And a better human being on top of that. Right. That'd be nice. Yes. That'd be nice. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's unique working in the nonprofit world. I mean, to an extent, everyone jumps into the job they jump into and we want to believe that we're doing it. And hopefully some of us are because of the mission of the organization or because we believe in what this company does. Right. Mm. But I don't, I don't think that's ever any more true than it is in the nonprofit space. Like at least that, that would be my guess is that a lot of people come because they believe in, in what, what you guys are doing. The challenge with that, I would imagine is if you're so sold out to what the company's doing and the mission, you believe in it so much, you might tend to, sacrifice your own well-being, your own mental health, or maybe overwork even more so for the sake of the cause, right? Yes. So I, I'm curious, is, is burnout a big problem for organizations like yours? And, and how does it weigh between kind of the for-profit groups that you've been with in the past? So yes, Jordan, a burnout is real. Mm-hmm. It was real before COVID. Um, imagine as many of our employees do, dedicating your life to a cause right. and championing people, elevating these those voices. Yeah. And sometimes you win and sometimes you don't. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, sometimes you break through and sometimes you don't. And unlike 
some jobs where, you know, you can clock in and clock out. It's not always easy to shut your laptop and pivot to, you know, playing guess who with your kids or watching something um, on television for entertainment because the stories um, that you've heard, the people you've connected with, the things that you've observed rest on your heart and your mind. And so that's very much why um, the institutional priorities around stress and resilience are important. Mm. And what I've tried to do in my own leadership, because I've had my own challenges with balancing work and life, is to model that it's okay to step back and it's okay to take care of yourself. In fact, the best way to take care of other people is to start by taking care of yourself so that you can give the best and the most to your work. And that's a lot of what we're trying to do. And so we're modeling what good looks like when it comes to work-life balance and that you can't be on all the time and that's okay. And you may not feel your best all the time, and that's okay. That um, you know, there's a space to raise your hand and say you need a break. There's a space to raise your hand and say you need time. And it's okay to say, I was upset. I was triggered. I, I felt badly. I cried. I was sick because I experienced X, Y, Z. And, right. and what we're hoping for is to learn and understand um, those things that trigger each other and um, to make sure that we're allies for one another and we support one another so that we're strong. And um, so that strength allows us to continue our really important work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just think of it from my own perspective and, and hopefully it's fair to say, and this is maybe true all over the globe, but in the United States, we can be, we can be a little nearsighted, right? Like in other words, we're we're hopefully focused on the injustices right in front of us here at home, but we can get so singularly focused on the U.S. that we don't even engage with world news and what and the global injustices that are happening every day. But for me, that not part of an organization like yours, I, I if I get overwhelmed, I can just sort of turn the news off for a few weeks, right? Like I, yes. I can just like check out and, and just okay, I, I just need to decompress from the the weight of these stories and the grief and the, the things that you feel, because your choices are you can stop feeling, right? You can just get really cold, you know, or you can deal with the grief and the frustration and the anger of everything that you see, hear, and read, right? Yeah. And yeah. like, that's healthier than I think than like going that cold, unfeeling route. But, you know, for, for you and the, and the folks that work for you and with you, you don't have that choice. You can't just clock out of the emotion, right? Um, and so I, it's got to be just such a strain on on mental health. I'm sure to a degree there's positives to it as well, right? I'm sure you feel thankful in a lot of ways for you know, the comforts that you have and so forth. But how, how do what, you kind of programmatically, how do you go about helping people stay resilient, as you put it, and deal with those stressors. And, you know, I, I know it's not easy, but like scaling that across 500 people, it's not like you can just sit and have coffee with everybody in the organization and talk it out. How do you scale that across 60 countries? Well, so you've taken a number of challenges and um, looped them together in one question. <laughs> and so I'm going to compound your question by just reminding you that 
that being as global as we are means that people are working in different time zones. Ah. So I was up at 6 a.m. today for one of our town halls, right? And so, so that makes the days even longer. It makes wow. the ability to be disciplined of work-life balance a little bit more challenging. Mm. But I think it starts, Jordan, with just intentionality. You know, I'm going to preserve and safeguard my physical and mental health so that I can be on top of the work that I need to need to execute. And then the rest of it is on institutional support. So we have a stress and resilience task force. One of the members of my team is one of um, several co-chairs. And this is a team that, and a group that when the pandemic hit, they were sending out guidance on platforms where, where people can meditate, Mm. do yoga. They were producing videos of, people learning new things and how people were setting up in a virtual moment to sort of keep everyone together, even though we couldn't touch each other, we could see each other. Right. We purchased a Calm app for all of our staff um, who desire to download it and, and to seek that technology and other platforms to figure out how to relax, how to turn the brain off so that you can have you know, a good rest, how you can plan in advance how many of hours of sleep you want to get. We have in-house counselors Mm. that work with the HR team but are not part of the HR team to create safe places for for people who need to work out things that they're struggling with. We have a peer-to-peer support program that we just rolled out for colleagues to go to other colleagues and talk through issues and and get ideas and concepts and tools that other people may have had that they can leverage to improve their situation – and we're an open environment. You know, HR has not always been a safe place for people. And that's not yeah. just an HRW problem. That's, you know, across both the public and private and, and non-for-profit sector. Um, right. Sometimes HR is a scary place to go. And so we've, mm. we've worked to cultivate relationships so that people can go wherever they're comfortable. Right. And from there, we can triage what the problem is. And um, we can work authentically, genuinely, collectively, and safely solve people's hmm. issues in ways that are um, worthy of, of them and their meaningful contributions to our work. Yeah. It, you, the undertones of, of what you just shared, again, are back to the value of people, the, the yes. dignity of them, the, the, the fact that they have worth, right? Because sometimes it's not all, I mean, and it's beautiful when you describe so many programs, so many helpful things, but, but all of those programs, if you just threw all of those at an issue without the undertones of, of dignity and respect, it, it would all fall on deaf ears and rightly so, That's right. right? So just pointing that out for listeners that, and I can see your face too, so I can see the heart um, more than they'll be able to when, when they're listening. So one other question I had around just sort of how spread out, you talked about the time zones, et cetera, 60 countries. I don't know how many offices that is from a, a physical mm-hmm. standpoint, but what's going on with 60 countries, COVID, COVID's happening differently, being experienced differently in these different countries. Is there any thought around returning to office, staying at home? Is it country to country? I mean, how are you even approaching that? With this amazing group of of colleagues who um, formed our COVID-19 task force, you know, we've got someone from from the Stress and Resilience Task Force. We've got someone from 
a senior manager in our development shop, our head of physical security, our head of finance and operations, myself, members of, of program and, and different teams. And we, we rolled out a office closure process where we were sort of leveraging on the ground information around where levels were and what regulations mm-hmm. um, were in place. And we worked with what we, we have are either office leaders or, or operational assistants um, who, who are sort of our contacts, our office court or coordinators yeah. to set up a, an infrastructure on how to safely close offices, you know, working with our IT department to get people set up. And it was overwhelming and hard and something none of us had ever really done before. Right. But we figured it out. And what wound up happening, Jordan, is we had just come from a period of some internal conflict. And the work we did, I think, to support staff, both from the Stress and Resilience Task Force work that I talked about earlier and the COVID-19 Task Force, it wound up being a unifying element to a very volatile and unpredictable situation in COVID. Mm -hmm. And, And so in reopening the offices, there's so much trust, I think, and so much confidence in um, and how we supported staff in the moment, you know, that we're leveraging that goodwill, the information on the ground um, to make sure we're keeping people safe and we're getting people back into the office in a responsible way. But we're also, you know, we did a dependent care program where for a period of time we were, you know, reimbursing folks who were seeking, you know, childcare and elder care for people that they had to look after. Um, We had home office reimbursements for folks who needed equipment to comfortably work in their homes and to be set up for success. And, you know, we're not forcing people to go back to work right away. Right. Because what people experience through this pandemic doesn't lift because they've gotten a vaccination. Right. All right. And because not all of our staff are in areas or locations where they can easily be vaccinated. Mm, Yeah. And because it's hard to find a silver lining in COVID, but this myth that's been perpetrated for years that only certain people can work from home has been blown wide open. Yeah. And we know that's not true. Right. We know that support staff, non-managers, managers, um, if we set people up with the right infrastructure, people can just can be just as impactful at home as they can be in the office. Now there are studies and discussions we can have about camaraderie and being in physical and in the in sort of a a physical connection with others and how that fosters good culture and all those other things but how we think about onboarding virtually and how we think about including people virtually in meetings and and all of those things at human rights watch those are things that you know will evolve into how we look at the future of work I hope that other organizations don't let those things go by the wayside just because mm-hmm. we're going back to normal, whatever that even means. Yeah. So we're taking what we learned from the beginning, what worked well for us, and we're applying it in a really sensitive and reasonable way. Um, and we're doing yeah. it at a pace that I think is respectful of people's individual mm. circumstances. Yeah. Well, it sounds like too, that there's trust built up. And so if that rollout, if that plan isn't perfect, which of course, not everyone's going to think it is, right? 
it, it can be, it can miss the mark, but if there's trust there, that's okay. Right. Like that, that, and those are the, the two elements. And I've just been interviewing a lot of folks and having, you know, not this conversation precisely, but just it's similar around the return to work conversation. And the two elements I keep seeing pop up are trust and choice. Yes. Yes. Right. And like, yeah. if you didn't build trust over the last like 14 months, well, tough, like, like the ship has sailed, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you're probably going to lose a lot of your people and there's not a whole lot you can do about it, but recruit well. Um, and good luck forward, with that. But, if you haven't made the changes. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, it's, it's ugly, <laughs> but I, I'm trying to give some semblance of Sorry. hope there, but um, <laughs> no, 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 you're right to say it. And, and then choice, right. And just understanding the, like, the diverse age groups, the diverse needs, some are parents, some aren't, some are, you know, like have certain handicaps. I mean, there's so many reasons why you need to offer a choice of, hey, you may need to work at home. You may be fine in the office. You want to split time. And, you know, so I think trust and choice just keep coming up over and over again. And I saw those elements as you were speaking. So that's really, congrats though. I mean, that's so great that you feel that confidence that, your people are bought in and they trust you to bring them through this impossible situation that we're all in because that's, and the future of your organization is going to be super bright as a result of, of that task force and your work, et cetera. So congrats on that. Cause a lot of folks did not do so well. Yeah, no thanks. <laughs> and, and, you know, we're um, yeah. a uh, group of advocates and so um, they'll, mm-hmm there'll be people who probably wanted us to go further or to do more because that's, that's what we do. Um, But I think I could tell you that people felt supported and I hope not to lose that confidence as, as we move forward. And one of the things about trust and choice that I would add to that, the third leg of the stool is grace. Mm. Um, That even though um, someone's going through something that doesn't resemble something that you're going through or, a problem that that you have um, that we're affording people grace to make the best decisions for their circumstances without feeling guilt yeah. and without feeling shame. Yes. Oh man. man, that's a whole that's a whole episode I could get into on that one. That I love that. I, I think there is precious little grace um, in our society right now, uh, particularly here in the U S I think it's very much like you made a mistake, you're done. So yeah, absolutely. That forgiveness and grace and that space to be human and to struggle and to deal with things and, and to deal with things that I might not understand. Um, that's man. Good. I'm writing that one down to trust choice and grace. That sounds like I need to write a book or something. Um, (laughs) <laughs> we'll, we'll co-author it. It'll, it'll be great, man. Well, I've kept you uh, actually a little longer than I intended to. So our editors are going to be like, this episode's too long, but that's okay. It was well worth it. Thank you so much, Colin, for thank you, the, Jordan. the perspective, the heart behind what you're saying. Um, it's not just lip service. I can tell that you just believe and human dignity and it sounds like the folks in your organization are experiencing that and of course you guys are out there in the world making sure that everyone gets to experience that leveraging your your voice to give them a voice um so it's a it's an awesome thing to see it was a pleasure to be here and and thanks for you and um you have a wonderful team by the way olivia was great in, in getting this all connected it was a real privilege to have the opportunity to talk with you uh well thank you so much for saying so and thank you to our listeners 
for checking in again with us this week on Bragworthy Culture. We will see you next week. Bye-bye.